Hello, Barry. It is uh, a bit of uncharted territory here, if I'm honest. Uh, <laughs> blood is pumping a little bit crazy. Uh, we are live on the interwebs for the first time ever. Uh, it's quite a bit of adrenaline that's just rushing through my blood. Uh, but basically, the reason we're doing this is to try and get some efficiencies in our workflow, not to sound so technical. Uh, but obviously, it takes <laughs> ages to edit episodes. I mean, we're currently on episode 62, and uh, we're busy recording recording 63 before we've even released 62 because it takes so long it's barry uploading the video on his side me actually editing it by the time it gets to you guys uh it's a little bit old already uh so barry how are you doing are you excited to be doing our very first live stream i'm very excited it's taken us over an hour to figure out all the technical <laughs> nits and bits and pieces trying to get the microphones and the cameras to work so this really is uncharted territory like you say and we're going to test this out on this episode so bear with us throughout all the technical glitches that are to come over the next hour or so but i'm very excited chad i think that this live format is going to bring a whole new energy yep. to the podcast and i can't wait to get started I completely agree. I think it's, uh, we, I mean, we spoke in episode 62, which uh, a lot of people haven't even heard yet about, uh, you know, Clubhouse and what it's doing to just this, this, this idea of live. And uh, I do think it's a very exciting space. So I'm glad we're getting involved in it ourselves too. So if you're new here, a welcome to Across the Pond. Uh, you're obviously going to be seeing this recorded afterwards as well. And the other thing it's going to let us do, Barry, is actually interact with guests too, because now what we have is the comments and reactions feature while people are watching they can actually engage with us too which is really cool definitely and hopefully it brings more people into the show on a real-time basis which is really exciting so yeah it's one of those things where if you love across the pond and you really want to get into the meat of things as it comes out you have a great opportunity to interact and ask questions and give your thoughts because of course we don't know everything there's a yeah. lot of stuff we don't know about <laughs> and we'd love to have some other voices in the podcast as well so hopefully that is the case as we go, as we go forward with this chat too true well shall we kick this one off then i know we've got uh, some some pretty like technical stuff to explain this week hopefully we don't make <laughs> as many mistakes as we do usually uh, but that's okay i'm sure people will will be okay with us it is our first live stream after all uh, so shall we kick off with the week that was let's do it chad the week that was It has been a crazy week in the financial markets, Chad. Yep. One of the most insane weeks I can ever remember when it comes to Wall Street and the stock markets. And it's been weird because it's been not just the financially savvy people who've been talking about it. It's literally been everywhere. Every single news site, everyone is talking about this whole thing, this thing called GameStop. Yep. This old gaming retailer in the US that was kind of irrelevant, was kind of going out of business. It felt like it didn't really exist anymore. And all of a sudden its share price has rocketed up thanks to a battle between reddit and the hedge funds chad have you followed any of this so to be completely honest um i for some reason was living in a bit of a underneath a rock at the beginning part of this week and uh, one of my colleagues actually reached out and said uh, you know have you heard about gamestop like have you been following what's actually been happening and just a very quick yeah. google search uh, revealed all that was and i mean you're completely right it, it felt to me like we were back in the early crypto days where everyone and their horse is throwing their <laughs> personal money uh, into a commodity in this case we're talking about a share of a of a company that is listed but but you're completely right a, a, a company that 
for you know all intensive purposes is just a you know a gaming brick and mortar store um, but obviously we've got a lot more to talk about here Barry we've got the the, the whole phenomenon of social media and how that is affecting what is currently happening and then of course you've got the the, the backdrop of COVID-19 uh, people having a lot more time on their hands you've got all of the various stimulus measures that's been thrown out throughout the world people are on furlough sitting at home with uh, no you know they're not actually having to work uh, for their money so there's a loads of different variables here and I'm, I'm certainly keen to get your take being someone who worked in a bank and basically did all of your rotations through all the various departments <laughs> uh, so I'm keen to hear it from from your angle Yes, like like you say, it's almost the perfect storm. All these things came together to create this absolutely insane scenario. And so what I thought we'd do is run through it step by step and see if we can break down some of the key principles. And it's good that you almost haven't been following, Chad, because you can ask the questions that our listeners would yeah. normally ask if they don't know what's going on. So let's, let's get started, right? So in, back in June 2019, there was this Reddit user called Real Fucking Value who was buying what they call long-dated calls on GameStop stock back in the day. And what a call means is basically you're betting for the share to go up. Yep. So he believed that for some reason this company was going to turn itself around and reinvent itself. And he was had bought $50,000 worth of calls. And on this Reddit forum every single month, he was posting a screenshot of his balance under the title G GME YOLO update. <laughs> and basically people were laughing at him for months and months and months as his position went down and down and down. Oh, I think gosh. it was down up to $40,000 at one point. So that was the first piece of it, right? Second piece, Michael Burry, an investor that was famous because he was one of the guys in the big short. He shorted the, the mortgage crisis in 2008. Right. He disclosed a 3% position in GameStop back in August 2019, basically saying that he thinks this company is very, very undervalued. So that was the second piece of this. The third piece is that GameStop itself in August 2020, so a year later, installed an e-commerce expert by the name of Ryan Cohen into their board. So that he took a 10% position and his whole plan was to try and turn this retailer into an online gaming sales platform, for okay. example. And so those are the three pieces that kind of gave you a sense that maybe there was more to this three, four dollar stock than than meets the eye. And because of that, those those stocks jumped, I think, up until about twenty or thirty dollars at that stage. So it really showed a little bit of that. What happened on the other side, though, is that the hedge funds and the institutional capital didn't believe that they were going to be able to turn this around. And they saw this as an opportunity to short these shares. Right. Now, to short these shares, what that means is that we're going to bet for it to go down. We think the share price is going to go down. And so when you short a share, all you're doing is you're borrowing a share from somebody else. Yep. Then you're selling it at market value and then hoping to buy it back at a later date at a lower value in order to give it back to the person you borrowed it from. Right. So it's a little bit complicated from a financial perspective, but basically all you're doing is you're betting for the, the company's share price to go down. So this Reddit, the Reddit uh, subreddit called Wall Street Bets discovered that there were huge numbers of shorts on this GameStop shock. GameStop stock, there we go. Um, in fact, it was 120% more shorts than there were shares in existence, wow. which is a crazy stat. It, it, it can't work like that. It doesn't make any sense that that's possible, right? And so Wall Street Best decided 
they were going to teach these hedge fund guys a lesson. And they didn't like the fact that these hedge funds were trying to destroy the stock by just shorting the crap out of it, right? Yep. And so what they decided with their millions and millions of people on this subreddit is that they were going to go and buy the stock all at the same time and see if they could drive the price up and up and up and up and up to force these hedge funds to like consolidate all of their losses in order to cover what's called a margin call. Right. So when you you make when you post a short, you have to have some money in your bank account so that if things go haywire, you can actually pay back the person you borrowed yep. the share from. So if you can force that margin call, it's something called a short squeeze. And basically you've got no other option than to buy back the share at a loss. In in essence, pushing that price even further as you buy it and then giving that share back to the person you borrowed it from. So there was this little glitch in the matrix and these these little redditors decided, cool, let's see what we can do. Can we push the share price up to to the moon, as they've been saying? <laughs> Game up to the moon, right? And, and 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 by doing so, they caused an absolute chaos in the markets. Because all of a sudden, these hedge funds were finding themselves losing billions and billions of dollars every single minute. And it caused an absolute war that is still raging today, Chad. Yeah, it's just insane. Uh, and I, I think you've given the the most perfect explanation in terms of the financial sense uh, for the kind of ordinary man on the street to understand. I think a lot of people, though, have become a bit more financially literate after the story because in kind of understanding what this whole like swarm and this whole media storm has been, you have to you have to go and watch a bit of a basic 101 video to try and understand it. Um, but you're right, it's it's just been uh, absolutely crazy to to see, like you say, firstly that short level, and then secondly the the squeeze, which was highly effective and uh, like we're saying, loads of little things to talk about. So the first bit that I want to quickly just ask about, uh, obviously assuming you didn't have anything more to add there, and if you did, we can. We can go back to it later. Um, but I just wanted to touch on something that you point you pointed there, which is uh, kind of this idea about that 100, 120% short interest driving the stock down. Like not just the, the kind of financial value of the stock down, but when we see big shorts like this, it starts to, it starts to really, uh, you know, investors start to have questions about what about the underlyings in the stock? You know, are there investigations that need to be had? Is there information that the rest of the market don't know about? Why do, uh, you know, why do these hedge funds think they're worth so little? So in the past, I think lots of shorts have resulted in, uh, in like you say, just market sentiment completely changing on a stock. Um, and obviously, the guys on Reddit here just just had an this idea of, uh, you know, the big man and uh, the little little guy fighting back. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's such a key point because all of this is market sentiment, right? The price that GameStop is at at the moment, which is over 300 and something dollars a share, is not indicative at all of the business. It is pure speculation. It's a pure war on this price, trying to squeeze these guys for as much as they can. Um, I think what, what's very important about this is that you should never get to a stage where your shorts exceed the number of shares, right? The right. only reason that gets to that stage is because you've got thousands of different brokers that can all offer this financial instrument. And they don't care about the, 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 the company at all. It's not like they, they have seen some fraud. It's not like they've seen anything. They are just making yeah. a bet. Yeah. And so a lot of this is financial gambling. And unfortunately, that doesn't help the, the company itself because, like you say, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The moment that a, a layman sees a short like that, they assume that these hedge funds must know something that they don't. Yep. And then in order to kind of make it work, they will bet that they'll push that stock down because they will want to sell it. Um, and so the big conversation around here is, is that should that be legal? 
is that the system working the way it should or should we need to change things in order to avoid that happening? And then again, why should a hedge fund have the power to destroy a company based on their financial gambling? Yep. That's kind of a big question that's come out of this is that it's not like they have seen they they don't have a reason to bet this company down other than they think that it's not worth what it's worth. And so shorting is important in one sense because it keeps investors accountable and it keeps businesses accountable and kind of regulates right. prices in the market. But when it gets to this sort of level, when you're shorting way more than the shares that are available, something's broken there. And that's why this, this, where this conversation of Bitcoin and decentralized finance comes from is that in a Bitcoin or blockchain environment, you wouldn't be able to short more shares than there exists because there's right. one source of truth. There's right. one public ledger. But in our current system, that's not the case. And so you end up with these weird scenarios we've seen over the last week. Yeah, and I think talking about the regulation is an, is the next point uh, to, to discuss on because obviously you're you know very familiar with uh, with certainly in the South African landscape what all those re all that regulation looks like and I know it's very different uh, depending on where you are in the world uh, but but certainly this idea of a whole bunch of people together kind of colluding uh, to buy a certain stock doesn't seem at first glance to me uh, to be something that is, is legal. Um, and I actually watched a very interesting uh, you know, interview earlier by Sky uh, with essentially the guy who was the original Wolf of Wall Street and, and kind of his take on it. And it, I mean, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, he pretty much said, uh, you know, had he actually got involved in this kind of thing, he probably would have been taken out for it. Uh, and I mean, there's the question. Is this, strictly speaking, legal? A, a, a forum of individuals uh, collectively going together, colluding to invest in a particular stock? It's the most interesting piece of this because it, 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 it kind of, we don't know if it's market manipulation or not. Basically, the legal thing they're talking about is, is this market manipulation? Are you kind of colluding, like you say, to yep. drive a stock up or down without reference to the actual fundamentals? And in one sense, it is. In one sense, it is because you've got this ginormous subreddit saying, cool, we don't care what GameStop's about. We're just going to buy it nonetheless because we know we can squeeze these guys out. So in that sense, it is manipulation. But then on the other side of the coin, hedge funds have been doing this since the beginning mm. of time. Everyone knows that in the informal conversations and the servers and the WhatsApp groups and all the stuff between big hedge fund investors, they've been doing this forever. That's how they make their money is that they move sentiment and they move markets because they've got billions and billions of dollars to deploy. So the question is, is it wrong now that the little guys are doing it, even yeah. though the, the big guys have been doing it for yeah. so long? Um, and that is the big question here is like, where should this regulation lie and what difference does it make whether it's on a subreddit or in a WhatsApp group between hedge fund managers, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a completely fair question. And I mean, like you say, a lot of people are asking that question, which is which is weird because the way you phrase it, uh, you know, being it's been happening for so long under different guys and it's okay in that vein but now we we're starting to question things now the one thing it's that's more public right it's just more public yeah. that that's what it is and that's what the social media thing does is that it's in the eye of everybody the hedge fund stuff all of their manipulation happens behind closed doors yeah. and the vast majority of people don't know about it but when it's on a subreddit that everyone can look at and the whole world is watching it changes everything yeah, it completely does. So the one thing about the little guy and how the little guy was actually able to even do this, um, considering, of course, uh, basically the technology of today and I suppose all the platforms that we have uh, at our hands, is that the little guy can now actually download an app. Uh, I mean, in the crypto world, you would refer to it as an on-ramp and an off-ramp. I suppose it works fairly similar in the in the share trading environment, but 
Essentially, these investors, the little guy, have been able to easily, you know, buy and sell shares in a way that they haven't in previous decades. And obviously, they were quite frustrated when uh, one of those exchanges decided to actually block the sale of these securities, uh, potentially to safeguard themselves. I don't know. What do you think? That's the big drama of the last couple of days. And Chad, it wasn't just – so the, the app you're referring to is Robinhood, and that's yeah. kind of the biggest one that's kind of democratized investing. But it's actually five or six different companies who did the same thing. It's just the Robinhood in the news because they're the best-known one. Right. And like you say, they brought the kind of investing to individual investors that just wasn't possible beforehand, not just to buy shares, to buy calls, to buy puts, to buy all these complicated financial instruments that yeah. weren't, weren't part of individual investing for the longest time. And so Robinhood got incredibly popular. They become the num- they became the number one app in the app store. They wow. were absolutely gathering all of these people who were jumping on this bandwagon, GME to the moon, everyone <laughs> was shouting the rallying cry. And Robinhood just couldn't handle it, right? And so what happened was very abruptly, they kind of announced that, listen, you, we're pausing trading on a, f- a, sh- a few shares, including GameStop, and you wouldn't be able to buy shares. You could still sell your shares if you wanted to, but you couldn't buy any more shares. And the reason that they gave and the like, kind of the interviews they gave on TV was saying that the reason was there was so much volatility that they wanted to protect the investors from themselves. Right. And, and that's it's simply not a good enough reason, to be honest. Yeah. And a lot of people were speculating behind the scenes as to what actually happened. And there were a couple of conspiracy theories and a couple of theories that came out. The first one is that there's a company called Citadel, which they use to do yeah. their what they call their share clearing. So Robin, Robinhood actually doesn't do any of the trades. All it's doing is acting as a user interface to then work with a broker behind the scenes. And that was Citadel. And there were rumors that because Citadel were involved with the hedge funds that had lost money, that they had given a call to the Robinhood right. guys and said, listen, stop this now because we are losing billions and billions of dollars and we need yep. to reset our positions. If that's the case, that's illegal and that's serious ramifications. So there's lots of lawsuits that are in the, in the offing because of that. But we don't know if that's true. The other potentially, and I think it's the more feasible one, is that Robinhood simply didn't have the liquidity to deal with all of these trades. Yep. yep. When you when you are a financial service provider, you have to hold what's called collateral or, yep. or capital in, in reserve to be able to manage all of the trades on your platform. And when you've got all of a sudden millions of people downloading the app and trying to buy stock, you've got a huge liquidity squeeze yep. and crisis, right? Yep. And so what I really think happened was that they found themselves insolvent in overnight, like almost immediately, and had to try and find a way to find extra capital, find an injection to be able to meet the regulatory requirements. So that to me is more feasible. But even so, they didn't say that. Like if that's the case, why didn't they admit that and say, listen, we are so popular, things are going so well for us, we just cannot manage all these trades, that's why we're stopping it. What it looked like, unfortunately, is that the hedge funds were stopping action in their tracks so that they could reset their positions so that they could then be okay. And that's what is getting people's grills up. Fascinating. I'm uh, certainly excited to hear about those investigations because, I mean, I know, you know, when we're talking about the SEC, these kinds of things are not to be taken lightly, especially if uh, the conspiracy that you referred to in the beginning turns out to be true. Um, And I mean, there, of course, is a possibility that that is the case. Uh, But on the second, uh, you know, certainly on the on the second, uh, you know, the second scenario that you mentioned there, Barry, um, for us as the, the little guy going onto this exchange and, you know, putting some numbers into an app, you put in your credit card details and it all seems to be seamless. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is that 
those transactions don't settle immediately. They you know they go through Visa or uh, Mastercard or whatever the case is, and there there is going to be a bit of a delay in in that kind of settlement. So is is that what you're talking about in terms of the, the liquidity and and also just broadly speaking, I suppose, just in terms of the the rest of the cash that they have to hold uh, in in terms of all of the various acts we've seen over the years. I mean. I can think of Basil, and I'm sure you can give me a whole bunch of others being in the banking space, Barry. I mean, am I missing a few? You are missing a few, but it gets way too complicated to go into all of them. It, it, it's very, very nuanced. But I think the key point here is that Robinhood is acting as a broker on your behalf. Right. And so it has to meet whatever regulatory requirements are necessary to hold the right amount of cash in their business so that all of a sudden, if you do start selling your shares, you want to get paid out, right? If you're Robinhood, you want to sell your GameStop shares, you want that money to be sure. back in your account. Yep. And they cannot do that unless they have certain reserves on hand. And this is exacerbated by the fact that people were buying calls and puts, which yep. are kind of pushing this into the future, right? Where you still have to hold a margin call today. And so it's it's very complicated, but the idea is that Robinhood, I, th- I don't think that Robinhood had the cash or right. the reserves to manage the huge amount of trades that were coming into their platform. And so in order to keep themselves solvent, which is the number one rule of business is keep yourself solvent, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they had to pause things to try and find some extra money. I think they are back online as of, as of the time we speak now, but those 24 hours were crucial where they were down just because people couldn't buy into the stock and they couldn't continue the squeeze. So the price dropped 45% within a couple hours. And the hedge funds, because the hedge funds, they've got their own brokers. They don't need Robinhood. And so yeah. they were able to close out any positions 100%. they had. They were able to buy shorts to now get on the way back down when we come back from the moon. Yep. They're going to be able to make money going down. And so it's just a very unfair situation where hedge funds are able to trade during those 24 hours, whereas your individual investors were locked out of the market. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I do want to touch a little bit on the puts and the calls. And I mean, as you say, it gets very technical, but I do want us to be, uh, you know, kind of enlightening our, our listener who might not be aware of this stuff uh, as to this this world that that lies, uh, you know, beyond just GameStop. Um, but, but let's talk about that. So we typically call these derivatives, uh, which essentially means that they derive their value from an underlying something else. So that could be uh, you know, a physical commodity. We could be talking about gold. We could be talking about an actual share that is linked uh, to an exchange. We took. We could be talking about uh, an exchange rate. Uh, we 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 could be talking about uh, you know cross currency swaps. And it does get very technical indeed. But just the ability of an individual to buy a derivative for me without going through an investment bank seems insane and i was very surprised to hear that Robinhood actually facilitates this kind of transaction for an individual who might not actually even understand what it is they're buying or selling and, and it, it comes through in the way they sell their product if you go into the Robinhood app and you're not a sophisticated investor you don't even know what you're buying yep. like like it's so easy within a couple of clicks you click on a green button or a red button as we think you think it's going to go up we think it's going to go down it really is like gambling in a sense and a lot of these investors don't know what they're doing and that's what this all this regulation is talk is going to be about is that moving forward is this actually possible and should we be allowing this this is exactly the same sort of reckless behavior that, that caused the mortgage crisis of 2008 yep, exactly we were able to gamble on housing prices assuming Housing always goes up. It always goes up. And all of a sudden, it didn't go up. And everyone was like, oh, wait, we've got 10x the amount of derivatives on the market than we have actual mortgages. And all of a sudden, things fall apart. And so, yes, I think it's a very key conversation to have is that these calls and these puts, like, 
it's very different to buying a share right now. When you're saying I'm going to buy a share in a f- at a future date at a yep. future price, or I'm going to sell a, a share at a future date at a future price, there's so much uncertainty in that period that you don't you don't know how to account for. And what I found scary was that I was reading an article somewhere that's that said that the derivatives market is worth like something like a thousand times the the value of the actual stock market, something crazy like that. Mm-hmm. So people are leveraging themselves to the hilt and gambling on these financial moves back and forth that they have no control over. And when something like this happens, and all of a sudden, like millions and millions of dollars are dis- disappearing because of the short squeeze, then everyone calls for more regulation. Yep. So yeah, it's such a difficult one, Chad, because you want these you want these instruments to be available to like sophisticated investors, yep. even on an individual level, because yep. they're part of wealth generation. That's it's part of the financial system. But at the same time, if you don't know what you're doing, this can get very dark very quickly. Yeah, and I guess that's just a word of caution to everyone listening, or whether it's live or at a future time. Um, <laughs> it's certainly, I mean, it, it's really hard to be in this juncture where you're logging onto social media and someone who you follow is has decided you know they want to take a plunge and they invest some of their cash because hey they uh, you know they earned tons of money and and you know in in that sort of cycle you get swept up to potentially want to do the same thing but it's a it's again another caution to everyone listening uh certainly on the gamestop stuff um you know it that's over it's probably done uh, I, I guess by now barry it, it's on its way down right it's not on its way down yet because we have some very, very passionate Redditors who are still holding the line. They still oh. want to go to the moon. But we must caution that the crash is inevitable. The yep. crash is inevitable, and it's going to be a hot potato situation. Is If you're left with a hot potato at the end, you're going to lose absolutely everything. So unfortunately, there are individual investors who are buying in now because they're excited by the hype, and they're learning about stocks for the first time, and they, they've got some extra stimulus checks to kind of throw into this equation. But unfortunately, GameStop is not worth $400 a share. Yep. It just isn't. And when the crash happens, it's going to be this massive panic that everyone tries to sell as quickly as they can as the, as the price like decimates itself. And if you're going to be left with that hot potato right at the bottom, you're in big trouble. Especially if you're on an app like Robinhood yep. where you don't control the brokerage, if they pause it and you're not in that in that situation, unfortunately, all your money disappears. And so yeah, I don't think you should be buying GameStop. I really don't <laughs> think you should. I think it's interesting, though, to think about it as what it means for the future of our financial system. And as investors, and even as lay people, this opportunity and this kind of scenario that's just happened in this past week has changed everything. Mm-hmm. It really has revolutionized how we think about the financial system. And it opens up so many interesting discussions about blockchain to come because a lot of the problems that we're seeing because of this week are solved by blockchain. And that's why I'm excited about this, obviously. Of course, I can just see your eyes lighting up there. <laughs> uh, and I, I mean, I, I'm going to ask you to, to kind of explain how some of that stuff would, would be solvable. Obviously, not, uh, not in crazy technical language. Uh, but, but before I do, I just want to ask, Barry, uh, in terms of what lies ahead for, for the rest of this year, the next couple of years, all that kind of stuff. Now that this group has decided or has has kind of discovered this audience that they have and they have been able to effectively uh you know earmark one stock and and make it go you know make it go up crazy i think a lot of people who have benefited positively have got their families out of financial trouble etc cetera, etc cetera. so the question now is is this all we're going to see in this type of news going forward, or do you think they've they can they tasted some bit of victory and uh, potentially get carried away with this? 
Chad, it's definitely the first of many because I think if you go into the subreddit, and I'd really recommend it, it's very enjoyable and very <laughs> exciting to go and look at the subreddit. Okay. Um, they have got a whole list of stocks and they've tried with five or six at the moment. So GameStop's the biggest one. It's the one that's in the news, but they've tried with a couple other ones, Bed Bath & Beyond, um, AMC, movie theaters, a whole bunch of different stocks yeah. that are heavily shorted. And the next one that sounds like on the horizons and on the WhatsApp groups that I'm on, <laughs> sounds like they want to do the same thing they've done, but to silver. To the to oh, the wow. the current the, not the currency the what's it the commodity silver yeah. um, because they think that silver is very heavily shorted and so I think we will see more of this in the part in, in the future in the in the year to come what's interesting to see is where the hedge funds will take some of their foot off the gas yep. so will they bring some of those short positions down to try and avoid this happening in the future and that's kind of the hope is that some of their reckless behavior is kind of pulled back a little bit because they realize that, oh, hold on, if this Reddit discovers this long, this short position that I have, they can very quickly put their millions of people on that on that that stock or that commodity and drive that price way up. So first of many, but I wonder if we'll ever see this sort of impact because hedge funds will, I'm assuming, will try and fix their positions a little bit. Yeah, this is fascinating. When you, t when you t tell me about all of the WhatsApp groups, it kind of reminds me of the cryptocurrency uh, fly up in the beginning where you you had all of these people yeah. who are overnight experts talking about oh no but you know bitcoin's not the one there's ripple and then there's a there's a fork and there's there's this and there's that and i never got involved in the whole thing uh, but it, it certainly sounds like that kind of time and that kind of discussion it's exactly that, Chad. It's all the crypto groups that I'm in are talking about this. And it is pure gambling. I'm telling you, like, I do not get into one of these yeah. groups and listen to these guys. They are just gambling. But it's exciting to watch the kind of conversations that they're having and and, and the, the behind the scenes, what's actually going into a short squeeze like this. This takes a lot of coordination. Yeah. You can't just pull this off with 10 of your mates around a dinner table. It takes millions of people buying the stock to actually make this happen. And that's what makes it so exciting. And there's so many parallels, like you said, to the crypto boom of, of years years and years past and that's why i'm so i just want to caution people that it's not about taking gamestop to the moon it's much bigger than that and i don't think you should be investing in these sorts of short squeezes there's way too much risk here but what it points to is that our financial system is potentially broken yeah. and potentially needs some some fixing because if this is able to happen a world economy could crash if this goes yeah, like, yeah. To, like to the moon, literally. It really could crash. If hedge funds are, are going bankrupt and pension funds are going bankrupt and those sorts of things, you're in big trouble as, as a world economy. And so this is kind of pointed. It's poked a hole in the, in, in, the, in the financial system and said, cool, are you resilient enough to put up with this little short squeeze? Because even though it's significant, it's still yeah. it's, one, it's one share, it's one yeah, stock yeah. on the U.S. market. Are you resilient enough as a system to manage this chaos? And that's the question we have to answer. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, you say that it can't be achieved with uh, one of your, with just you and 10 of your mates around the table. I mean, Barry, what if Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates were my mates? I'm sure we could pull it off. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all the money sure chad and i look forward to the day where you're sitting around a table with bull and jeff and elon i really look forward to that <laughs> hey stranger things have happened um so let's let's quickly just return to, to where we were barry and uh I just talk about how crypto could have made this uh, in a, a different scenario so so what is it about a cryptocurrency blockchain technology i suppose uh i suppose it's blockchain more specifically than than crypto what does blockchain have that could fix this kind of stuff? I mean, is it more transparency? Would we have been able to see that there's a short position uh, in, in the kind of extent that it was because of the public ledger? Is that the kind of uh, fix here or is there something else happening behind the scene? 
The transparency is not as important in this case because um, I think regulation shows that for certain short positions, you have to right. disclose that. So those, that was public information. Okay. Where, where blockchain really plays a role here is in decentralization, right? The whole idea of blockchain is that nobody owns it. Nobody owns the ability to trade. No one owns the, the, the ability to kind of make the market whatever they want. And the current financial system that we have is essentially a centralized system right. because the hedge funds and the, the big financial institutions have such a monopoly over the market that they can do whatever they want. They can change regulation. They can arbitrarily push prices up and down because they've got such huge volumes behind them yep. that they're able to kind of collude and do what they need to do. In a blockchain situation, they wouldn't be able to collude in the way that they do because there is so much more decentralization and ideally for, for example you wouldn't be able to short 140 percent of the shares because those shares each will be a piece of the blockchain and once you've reached 100 right. there's no more That's shares true. to short right and um, whereas at the moment because they are playing their own game behind this walled garden they can do all these weird and wonderful derivatives that don't actually have a have a tie in reality so that's the first piece the second piece is that blockchain allows what's called smart contracts, which are contracts that can execute automatically based on certain triggers. Uh, so instead of relying on Robinhood or one of these interfaces to go and like do your brokerage for you, and then all of a sudden they phone you and say, oh, we, we, we're closed today. Sorry, we, we can't execute your contract. Instead of that situation, you can say with absolute certainty that when this price hits a certain thing, I want to sell my contract, right. I want to sell my put, my call, whatever. So that's the second piece of this, and that's what makes this a decentralized network, is that there is no one company or a hedge fund or a Robinhood who has control over your finances or over your, your shares or whatever. It's completely in the hands of each individual investor. Now, of course, that brings up a lot of questions about are people sophisticated enough yeah. to understand that? And we've seen lots of stories of people losing their Bitcoin passwords and losing millions of dollars <laughs> in Bitcoin because they lost their password, right? Yeah. Whereas when you have a broker, that, that, that isn't a concern. So there are, there are downsides to it. But a lot of the problems that have been raised in the situation conveniently have Bitcoin solutions or blockchain solutions at least. And so there's a lot of discussion now about is this the time? Is this the time where we see blockchain start to find its first real use case? Because up until now, it's purely been speculation. Yep. People are playing with it because it's exciting and this new technology and it's got all this potential. This could be the very first use case that actually comes into effect. And I don't know if that's next year, in 10 years, in 50 years time. I don't know when it is but it's, it's a sign of light for the blockchain community that it's more than just a currency it could become the heartbeat of a decentralized financial system that doesn't allow hedge funds to control it in the way they do currently i love it and i love the passion with which you speak about it uh, i mean everyone watching like look at barry he's in his absolute element uh no thanks thanks for for kind of explaining that 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 really does help quite a lot um so now that we are all clued up about derivatives about the financial markets about blockchain uh we, we certainly didn't start this one on a light note did we um we can now move on uh, to to the next thing that is a little bit uh, complex, and and that is talking about vaccines. Uh, we've seen a whole bunch of news this week, uh, obviously about new vaccines, and we're not going to go into that specifically today. But what I do want to talk about is this dynamic between the UK and the EU. Obviously, Brexit happened in 2020, uh, and for all of the years that we had been speaking about it, kind of preempting things that could possibly happen, uh, loads of speculation. I mean, obviously, never thought it was going to actually physically happen because of how long it was dragging on. 
It actually did happen. Yeah. And uh, what we've now seen since then is potentially some of the benefits uh, for the UK because they have been able to, they secured a contract with AstraZeneca uh, and I suppose a load of the other, uh, you know, vaccine manufacturers away before the EU did. And so because of that, the UK is now sitting in a great position, uh, in a favorable position in terms of having access to a whole bunch of different vaccines. And what you're seeing now is you're seeing, I mean, some people say the UK is about 12 weeks ahead of the EU in terms of vaccine supply, which is pretty significant. Uh, what you're seeing now is cases going absolutely crazy in Portugal and Spain. Uh, funny enough, France doesn't look too bad at this point in time. But what you're seeing is, is obviously the UK variant transmitting its way through Europe. And ultimately, these countries uh, you're struggling to, to contain it and obviously looking towards the horizon for the way out of this, which is vaccines. Uh, and ultimately, we've seen quite a lot of back and forth this week uh, in terms of in terms of vaccines and more specifically, the ability to export vaccines from the EU. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to focus particularly on AstraZeneca because I think this was the most uh, fascinating this week where essentially we, we saw the, the CEO making a couple of allegations about contracts that were held with the EU. And on the back of that, uh, the, the, the commission in the EU actually just went out and published the contract. They said, you know, you, this is what you say. Well, here's the actual contract. Um, and it, it's it's crazy sort of uncharted territory, to be completely honest. And uh, certainly having a deal so you know, that's so recent, it's, it's just happened. To now be looking through all of those conditions and clauses, uh, just a few months, not even a few months, just within one month kind of after signing that deal, uh, looking through the, with a fine tooth comb all the various clauses and making sure that you, you're kind of within line. Um, it's, it's been really quite interesting, Barry, and I suppose when lives are on the line, uh, as we always know has been the case with the COVID crisis, now we're, we're, we're at the, the kind of peak of this battle vaccines are the most important thing uh, obviously we're going to see quite a bit of tension and activity around negotiations supply and uh, you know just i suppose uh, safeguarding the best of, of society in each particular country it's very easy before the vaccines are here to talk about okay we're going to distribute this equally we can make sure everyone across yep. the world has them we're going to do the best we can to like get the right categories going and whatnot. The moment the vaccines are here, like you say, and people are dying every single day, the stakes are so much higher that all of that gets thrown out the window and everyone is looking after themselves. I mean, America have been vaccinating millions of people. The UK have been vaccinating millions of yep. people. And here in South Africa, we don't even have a sniff of a vaccine yet, right? And so it's a great example of like when, when, high, when the stakes are high and urgency is required, all of a sudden becomes a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And everyone's looking after themselves. And that's why it's so interesting to publish a contract like that and actually like real give real transparency yeah. to what's actually happening behind the scenes. And it reminds you that Brexit has real implications. It really, really does impact the lives of ordinary Europeans and ordinary like British people, right? And so that that huge decision that took years and years to unravel is now showing itself that okay, there are real, real consequences yeah. here. And uh Obviously, there's lots of nuance and lots of discussions as to who is in the right and what the right way to do this is. But unfortunately, we still live in a world where the nation state is, is paramount. And people can look after their own citizens first and want to make sure that that is the case before they think about giving elsewhere or exporting, for example. So yeah, it's, it's a tricky one um, because humanity is almost fighting against itself in a way, which is unfortunate.
Yeah, yeah, you're completely right. And I mean, just to talk about the importance of, of Brexit and being able to have the, the European Union uh, order on behalf of their, their member states, what we what we did see, and I actually watched an interview with Tony Blair as well, um, and he actually said that we could have under under the, the, the European Union made our own plans in terms of vaccines as well. And it's actually something that, that Germany's done. So Germany's actually gone out and, and signed their own contracts, which is certainly fascinating uh, to look at. And it does kind of, like you say, question whether this union uh, is actually working in the best way when their members have to go kind of above it and uh, expedite their own contracts. Um, so that certainly is uh, pretty, pretty fascinating. So I guess in terms of this uh, actual, the core issue here, Barry, is that you've got factories uh, for the AstraZeneca uh, which is the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. You've got factories manufacturing this in the EU. I think there's two factories. And of course, you also have one in the UK. Now, I believe the UK have sort of 100 million doses uh, that were kind of pre-ordered. Of course, this vaccine, you know, Oxford University was was core in coming up with this vaccine in the first place. So before we look at, uh, you know, where it's being manufactured, you obviously have to look at where the research came from, uh, you know, just the underlyings of the vaccine. And of course, because of that, and because of that partnership, UK were able to safeguard kind of 100 million doses before anyone else. And I suppose the, the important thing here is that you've got people producing it in the UK, and you've also got people producing it in the EU. Now, the question is, why the EU factories are, are kind of shipping stuff across to the UK. And I suppose one of the one of the potential answers at this point in time is that the EU's actually been pretty slow at authorizing vaccines, approving them for use. And so that's that's the next key question here is uh, the countries who are able to get that approval and start the actual rollouts as soon as possible are of course going to be the most the biggest priority because there's no point in a vaccine just sitting in a lab uh, where you can actually get it into people's arms. Exactly. And that's the bureaucracy that really becomes a key part of this discussion. We chatted a lot about logistics in the build-up to this, yeah. this, this vaccine. And that's exactly what it means is that if you're not able to be agile enough to adjust changing circumstances and get those shots into people's arms and you kind of mire it in paperwork or bureaucracy or whatever needs to be done in, in order to regulate and approve these things, then unfortunately you're not going to be able to pull it off. And like you say, the factory just wants to get those things out and into people's, into people's um, arms and stuff, right? So it is one of those examples of an EU-type situation where the bureaucracy is quite legit and quite yep. serious. And it's often much easier as a one-nation state to go and get, get the job done because you can act a little bit quicker than a much bigger organization that has so many more considerations to make. It's very similar to the discussion between big companies, which are quite stodgy and don't really want to change, versus startups, which are able to really move quickly and yep. act decisively. It's a very similar thing. One country on its own, Germany can go and get those vaccines that it needs without needing to go through all of the considerations that a big EU needs to go through in order to please all the various stakeholders. And so it's a very interesting discussion as to what is the right configuration of this and how do you get these things as quickly as possible without wasting time and wasting opportunities where these vaccines are sitting on a shelf. 
hundred uh, percent. And you know, it's not an easy one, especially because as as this time is taken, we've got variants that who knows, Barry, a new variant could be busy out in the wild happening right now. So the longer the longer you take uh, to actually to actually get these things into people's arms, uh, the more risk you have of this just becoming worse and worse and worse. One other little bit that I wanted to highlight uh, while we were here, just talking about this, Barry, is in terms of that Brexit deal, what we actually saw this past week and this is this is fascinating for me is that we actually saw the eu breaking the deal temporarily so they invo- invoked what they call uh, article 16 uh, which essentially stops exports to northern ireland um and i mean i don't i don't understand the full ramifications of this but it, it's a pretty big deal um obviously we northern ireland has been a key part of this topic since the beginning uh, obviously, you have an island in the middle of the ocean, which is split into two. Um, and, you know, the bottom part falls within the EU. The top part falls within the UK. Um, and and so, obviously, without having an actual physical border there uh, to stop what's going in and out, this is one of the key bits that, that this deal has been centered around. And to see something like this happen... Um, and was actually quickly withdrawn afterwards, I suppose, for for very good reason. Uh, But it certainly is, I think, quite worrying to see this so quickly after reaching this deal. That's the thing. I mean, I I remember us chatting about it, Chad, and it really was a big sticking point for months and months and months, and it was the cause of a lot of negotiation Mm. and and lots of difficult conversations. And everyone knew that this was going to come. At some point, this little little anomaly was going to be tested. And who would have thought that a couple of weeks after the Brexit deal is actually approved and gone through, it comes to bite us, right? And so, yeah, it, it really is a tricky situation. And it, it's such an interesting one from a historical perspective because the reason that Ireland is split is because of very interesting kind of religious mm. fights in the past and all these sorts of these these very much, we don't know if we want to belong with you and we feel very different to you. But all of a sudden, a global vaccine, a global pan- pandemic requires us to stand together as one. And like you say, revoke things where necessary, move the rules, bend things where possible. Um, it's a reminder to all of us that all of these div- divisions and these these kind of, these, these barriers between us and other human beings have ramifications. And when we need each other, all of a sudden you've got to break these walls down. And that's not as easy as once thought. No, definitely isn't. And uh, I guess this is why you kind of try and get all stakeholders involved when you when you think about these deals. But hopefully once yeah. you <laughs> once you put the you know the the wet ink on that dotted line, uh, you'd certainly hope that all parties uh, you know are, are going to be sticking to what it is that they've agreed upon. Uh, so let's hope that that never happens again. I certainly don't think this is the end of the story, Barry. Um, the other question, of course, is about you know developing nations. So like you say. South Africa uh, in a in a bit of trouble, it seems. Obviously, you've got the COVAX alliance and all of that kind of stuff. I, it's certainly worth mentioning that the UK and certainly the US have over-ordered vaccines. There is no way that if every single one of these vaccines uh, is an actual thing and gets approved for use and all that kind of stuff, that that you know both of those countries are going to be able to use those vaccines for themselves. Uh, so I'm sure at some point in time, uh, hopefully we would see some rejigging of these vaccines to the, the developing world too. 
I hope so. And and I think I was a little bit exaggerating when I said we haven't had a sniff. I do think we have some vaccines coming in the next couple of weeks, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's a very small order and it's just for our healthcare workers to try and get the guys on the front line. But I think that the actual mass order of all of the vaccines is still a couple of months away for us. And I think it, it, it speaks to a lack of resources on South Africa's part. We just don't have the money to be able to bid in a lot of these bidding wars for the yep. first part. And the second part is like, we just aren't in those conversations enough. I don't know how much bargaining power South Africa or an emerging market has when it comes to an Oxford vaccine or when it comes yep. to one of these big vaccines in the first world. And and like we were chatting about earlier, we everyone wants to look after themselves first. It would be a really tough political move to kind of start sending vaccines across your borders if you've still got people in your country who haven't got it, right? Mm. It's a very, very difficult political move to pull off. And so developing markets, they they desperately need these vaccines, like you say. But unfortunately, that's the way the world works is that where the money is, that's what's going to dominate these discussions. And so once the US and the UK have vaccinated their whole population, then we'll see the PR spin and then they'll become these these aiders and they'll become these kind of saviors of the world, but only after they've saved themselves first. 100%. Your own life mask before helping others, right? Uh, it's such a great analogy that I use in so many areas of life, but it it's true. <laughs> it, it, it is true. You've got to kind of keep your own house in order and, and get yourself sorted first. Barry, shall we move on then to our next segment? Let's look ahead. Stuff I found interesting. Oh, the live got me, Chad. I said the wrong thing. The live got me. We're looking at stuff we found interesting. Looking ahead is not just yet. Uh, one of the joys of live streaming on YouTube is you get to see those bloopers in real time. So enjoy that wherever you're listening right now. But the first thing, well, the only thing I wanted to chat about in this segment, Chad, is a very short one. We chatted about uh, blockchain in the previous segment, and there was a very interesting development. Uh, uh, Elon Musk, the richest man in the world at the moment, he loves a good controversy. He loves to stir up the pot. He loves yep. to tweet all these ridiculous things. And he decided that in the middle of this GameStop to the moon talk, he was going to change his, his, his Twitter bio. And the only word in that Twitter bio is Bitcoin. That's his bio. Wow. And what was funny to see was that the moment that he made that bio, it trended across Twitter and and, and Bitcoin added, I think, 40, no, $20 billion with a market cap within a couple what? of minutes, which is absolutely insane. This man is so powerful. The moment he tweets something, he can change the world. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's crazy. I mean, I know we've spoken before about him putting a tweet out saying, I think the Tesla share price is overvalued, in my opinion, or something <laughs> like that. Um, yeah, certainly quite the quite the reckless tweeter. I mean, Trump is certainly not alone. Um, but this is really interesting to me, Barry, because of the fact that it's his bio. I mean, to be taken to his bio, you have to be actively looking at his profile page. And uh, I mean, to actually even trigger a trending uh, by changing your bio, this sparks me as something pretty interesting. He didn't even put out a tweet. No, but the thing is, Chad, is once one person sees it, they do the good old screenshots. Yeah. They take that drawing tool and they circle the Bitcoin and then they tweet that. And those are the screenshots that were generating all of the buzz. And so I think we forget that Elon Musk has got this crazy fanatical fan base, myself included, <laughs> yeah. who will literally follow every second of his life because he's such a powerful and influential figure. And so just changing the bio can cause a, a ripple throughout Twitter that really did like change the whole thing. And so for those who invested in Bitcoin, you made a lot of money in a very short space of time. But it's, it, it's more about the 
the endorsement almost, the implicit endorsement that he's giving to the platform. And I can't help but wonder, Chad, is there a Elon Musk Bitcoin slash blockchain company in the future? We know that he loves to jump on all of these things. He's got like six companies under his under his wings at the moment. Are we going to see a decentralized finance company coming from him in the future? And the reason it's so interesting is because if you remember, he was one of the very first founders of PayPal. That's where okay. he got his start, is that he was one of the founding team of PayPal. So he understands finance. He understands fintech. That's where he was born. That's where his first success was. Yep. I wouldn't be surprised to see something coming from him in the, in the future, some sort of blockchain-related company. And that's going to be a very interesting kind of value-adding status symbol for the whole blockchain community to say, cool, we've got this guy on our team. Yeah, that would be fascinating. I mean, the question there is, why did he not put blockchain uh, as just blockchain rather than Bitcoin? I mean, that is, like you say, quite the endorsement, uh, you know, to be coming from the Elon Musk. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised, like you say, I wouldn't be surprised if he's got something of his own in the works. It would make sense. Uh, the question for me is, if that were to happen, what are you going to do, Barry? <laughs> oh, I don't know, Chad. I don't know. It's it's very hard to bet against Elon Musk. Mm. Like all of his ideas have sounded crazy at the time. Who would have thought I'm going to start a rocket company and I'm not going to throw the rockets away. I'm going to land them again back on the earth and reuse them. Absolute insanity. Who would have thought I'm going to go away from all of these sports cars and all of these kind of petrol built cars. I'm going to build this amazing electric vehicle that is sexier, that is more high performance, that is faster than all of these cars. All of his ideas sound crazy at the time, but if you look at the results, you look at the track record, it's hard to bet against him. So I don't know. I wouldn't want to bet against him, Chad. Um, he's Elon Musk after all, but at the moment it feels more like a meme then a serious consideration for him. But but that's what happened with the boring company when he was deciding, cool, I'm going to dig tunnels under LA. It was all a meme. And he loves that sort of thing. So who knows? I, I, I don't know. I'll have to wait and see. But then again, he was very much in support of Kanye West's presidential candidate to run. And we know what happened with that, <laughs> well, though. Meme, for the meme, surely that's for the meme. I think that he's an expert troller, and and that's why I think that this Bitcoin thing has has made everyone's days. It certainly was very funny from my perspective. So I yeah, I hear you, but I think that it was more for the meme and the fact that he was being a few photos with Kanye West. I mean, why not? Why not? Definitely. Well, that's all <laughs> on that front. Let's now look at ourselves, Barry. I know you've been exciting for this. Let's develop and grow. Develop and grow. So, Chad, I want to lay my heart out on the line. I want to get some <laughs> advice from Mr. Chad Sturley and whoever's Ooh. listening or watching at this point. And uh, I've been struggling in the last couple of days. I've been working my butt off. And I think everyone who's working from home at the moment can feel that almost that droning monotony of sitting in that same chair by yourself or at your desk, whatever the story is, yeah. working for hour, hour, and hour, and hour. And when you don't have excuses, you don't have a social life to go to, you don't have other stuff going on, you never really get that break from the work. In the same way that when you're in an office, you can go and get a coffee or go and stand around the water cooler or go and get a yeah. go and get a, a like a, a, a go to a restaurant, go get some dinner. Or when you leave the office, you can like legitimately leave the office and kind of not be available. In today's world, we have to kind of be available all the time. And when there's nothing else to do, it feels like you can work all the time. And the problem is, Chad, I've been working all the time and it's getting a bit much. And so I wanted to ask you, like, how do we think about switching off when we're working from home? How do we think about, cool, 
we're going to set a time, close that laptop and not look at emails for the rest of the night. Because I'm really struggling with that and I'm trying to find ways to, tactics to kind of change my day a little bit so that I have a shutdown time so that I don't yeah. work all the time. What do you think? I think you've answered the question yourself. And to be honest, it, it, it was how I was going to answer it in any case. But then you said it yourself. So I was like, well, there we go. Barry's just done it for me. Um, but it's it's closing the laptop. So the challenge that you have is that the laptop that you spend your personal time on and the laptop that you work on is one in the same. Whereas in my case, I've got one that's been sent through by my company and then I've got my MacBook Pro, which is what I'm using right now. So when I've decided, okay, it's time to shut off, the work laptop literally gets closed and it gets put away in a drawer. I can't see it. I have to physically think about pulling the drawer out to take it up and set myself up to work <laughs> again. Um, and, and you know, once that happens, the natural progression is to my personal laptop, which means that I will only be doing stuff, personal stuff. In your case, because that laptop is one and the same, the little tip or hack or trick or whatever that I would give is to set up a second user profile on that laptop. So have one that is work. Uh, you can call it your company's name. I don't know if you've decided to unleash the name to the rest of the world yet, and, and you can if you'd like. Um, but but have have a, a profile that is for that company. Uh, obviously, you have all your documents and you have all your, your logins and everything's circulating over there. Um, and then for your personal one, you've got your personal, uh, your personal profile. So I think that could work potentially. It might still be a little bit too easy to click switch user and, and start working again. Uh, but I mean, that's that's how I would do it, Barry. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think I must think more about that kind of separation. Mm. I think one of the most powerful things in, in environments and creating productive environments is having dedicated spaces for certain things. And that's why an office works so well. Because when you leave the office, you physically do leave and your yeah. mind's like, cool, I can now switch off. Whereas when you're in the same space, it's almost like creating that digital separation rather than a physical separation, which I think is what you're getting at. But yeah. the second piece, and like you say, the problem I solve for myself in real time is, <laughs> is setting a time that I'm going to stop yeah. Yeah. and giving myself actual working hours. When you're working for yourself, it's very easy to kind of make your schedule whatever you want because the flexibility is infinite. You can do whatever you'd like. There's no <laughs> boss over your shoulder. There's no Teams invites. There's no kind of instant yeah. messaging from your, your teammates. And so it's very easy to have a very all over the place schedule. It's one of the best parts of working for yourself, but it can be a bit much sometimes. And mm. so I wonder if I need to be setting myself a starting time and an end time and then having the discipline to when that end time is up, then moving on to other stuff. And that's what I need to work on, I think. The, the, the weird and like almost funny in, in a way, uh, you know, part that, that this brings to, to the discussion is, a lot of people escape the nine to five for flexibility. But then when you escape the nine to five, what you realize is actually there's, there might be something in that nine to five idea um, and, and kind of start working your way back again. I mean, certainly when, we, when the world returns to normal, Barry, uh, I mean, I know you can socialize at the moment with, with friends and limited numbers and that kind of thing. But certainly when the world returns to normal again, I'm sure you're going to closer align yourself to that nine to five purely for a social aspect. So that when you do want to socialize, your friends are available because not all your friends are freelancers. And I, I bet not all of them would be able to go for coffee at 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it's exactly that. And it's so funny because I could write a book on this stuff about how all the glamour, the glamour of this, this freelancing, self-employed, mm. entrepreneur lifestyle, you don't see the realities behind it. Yes, yep. it's great to have flexibility, but that routine is actually super powerful. Mm. And if you don't get that right, you can 
waste your way your days away, which I've done multiple times in the past, because you just have too much flexibility and you actually want some routine and some structure in your days. And so, yeah, there's, there's lots to learn there. I learned a lot about myself in this whole process as to how yeah. to like work most productively when you don't have someone forcing you, when you don't have deadlines or you don't have kind of this external pressure. It all has to come from you. And, and, and that's a lot of pressure sometimes. Mm. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think that the nine to five is, is this meme that we want to escape because <laughs> it's this idea that it's going to be much better on the other side. The grass <laughs> is going to be greener. We're going to sit on our beach in Bermuda and work on our laptops and yep. all that stuff. It looks great on Instagram. The truth of the matter is it's way more complicated than that. It most certainly is. Well, Barry, we've done our first live stream. And I mean, if you look at the timer, Great timing. We kind of one hour and one minute. Uh, we, we've oh, really timed this one crazy. perfectly. Um, we've had one viewer, um, which is which is uh, quite something. But I, I guess we have to kind of preface it with this was our first live stream. We wanted to test this thing out, really. Uh, I don't even think we went into all the options to see if we can notify our subscribers or anything like that. So I bet we'll there'll be more to come on that front. If you're listening to this uh, on your favorite podcasting platform of choice, what we're going to be doing is is getting a bit of a schedule together and you will be able to watch with us in real time uh, in the future and be able to to comment and you know we can we can have a bit of a hangout going which which I think is really quite cool um, and potentially Barry we can even do some ad hoc uh, live streams as well that might not make it to to the regular podcast we'll we'll, we'll certainly see uh, see where this takes us but from what you've seen so far, is this live stream thing a thing? <laughs> I think it is, Chad. I, I've been so surprised by how easy it's been and how mm. smooth it's been. I think we've, we haven't had as many problems as we've had in the past when it comes to speaking. And maybe it's that extra <laughs> pressure to know that there is no editing. This is exactly how it's coming out of our mouths. Um, but we're looking forward to seeing what it looks like in the post. And we'd love to hear from you. If you're listening yep. to this or you're watching this post the live, please let us know what you think. This is an interesting new direction for us. And like you said, it might give us the freedom to make mm. different sorts of content Definitely. and make new sorts of things. And we're always looking to evolve here across the pond. We're always trying to get better and better. And so this has been a quite a successful experiment from my perspective, I think Chad. So. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I completely think so. Uh, I thought I'd be fumbling on my words 10 million. I mean, there were a couple. <laughs> but the thing is, you force yourself to recover. Whereas if you were the fly yeah. on the wall watching us record our episodes uh, in the oh, old boy. days, uh, old days being literally <laughs> from last week. Uh, I mean, just editing those bloopers together, Barry, it, it, it takes long. Yeah, it really does. It really does. And it's one of those things where the moment you've got some more stakes, maybe you perform yeah. a bit better because yep. you know you don't have that backup plan in your in your mind. You don't have the plan B. It's plan A or nothing else. <laughs> and so it's really going to test our skills, but hopefully deliver a more relevant, more timely product for you guys so that you're not hearing about GameStop a week after all the chaos. You're hearing about it as yeah. it's happening. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it also opens up so many options for us for guests, which I, I know we want to definitely do this year in a big way. Uh, you know, I, I've I, talking about going to the moon i've got i've got the moon ambitions barry uh with, with all the guests that we can be having and it's really quite cool because they're able to actually watch uh what's happening on on the screen at the very same time and uh and it's and it's all sleek and it all works really quite well so so that is indeed quite exciting well if you made it all this way thank you so much for for watching or listening uh we really do appreciate you and we hope to see you next week when we're back with another episode of across the pond oh. Stop.